Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. Let's just pray. Psalm 119 verses 17 to 18 says these words. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, as we gather here this afternoon, speak to us now through your word we pray. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts to see your majesty, your glory and your beauty. Lord, point us to Christ through your spirit as we listen to what you have to say to us now. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Culture is generally defined as the patterns of human activity and the symbolic structure that gives such activities importance. Let me open that up because that's a bit wordy. And let me give you a few examples of this. Come to church every Sunday is a cultural habit. Going to the cinema every Friday night is a cultural habit. Everything that we do in our lives, whether it's going to work day by day, whether it's getting up, and having breakfast and brushing our teeth, the way we speak, the way we think, everything we do is cultural habits. And whatever culture we find ourselves in at any stage of life, that molds who we become. And the younger we are, and the more like sponges we are, absorbing and taking in everything that we hear, see, and learn. And nowhere is more relevant and these truths, and the place we begin to develop, and that's the home. In chapter 6 of his letter to Ephesians, Paul wants to give practical advice to what it means to live the Christian life in the home. This is marked in chapter 5, verse 18, by, being, by a spirit-filled life. As we are filled by the Spirit of God, we are in um, chapter 5, verse 21, to live in reverence for Christ by submitting to one another. Last week, Simon gave us a helpful example of what it means to submit, courtesy of Jesus' model of service in love to his disciples and how they, in return, 
were to love one another. Jesus in John chapter 13, he stoops down to wash his disciples' feet. Now think about that for a second. The king of all creation, the embodiment of God's glory, living in amongst his image bearers. And here he is on his knees washing their feet. You know, God has given us the creative freedom to be culture creators. But it's important that in the culture we create and the patterns of life we pursue, glorify God and make Christ known through his spirit indwelling in us. And here in chapter 6, Paul is given the church in Ephesus imperatives in which the culture we create allow Christ to be known in the home as part of living the spirit-filled Christian life. But the church is also a home. It is a family in which God's people come together as they are known as his children. And in coming together we are to cultivate a corporate lifestyle in which the gospel can flourish. With those in our care and even with those who we come into contact with. So here, chapter 6 verses 1 to 9, it speaks of obedience. And so we're going to look at it from two angles here this afternoon. Obedience in the family and obedience in the workplace. And we will see what these two things mean for us. So firstly, let's think about Christian living and obedience in the family in verses 1 to 4. And verses 1 to 3 begin with an opening address towards children. Look at verse 1 with me and it says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And Paul's reasoning here stands alongside what one commentator calls natural law. You know, nearly every society is built upon the idea that children are to respect and obey their parents. Without obedience, a child can become part of a degenerate and wicked society. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul teaches that God's divine law is good as it both shows us what is contrary to healthy doctrine that includes rebelliousness against parents and it also points us back to God through Christ. So with that in mind, um, I want us to think about two things contained within this point. And the first thing is this. Children, obey your parents through the Lord. And look at verses 2 to 3 with me. And Paul is relating to the, the natural law of obedience with the divine law given to God's people back in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 16. Which says this, honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now let's be honest, nobody likes um, to be told what to do. As a child, I don't know how many times I felt the wrath of my mum Shirley because of this. And as I grew older, I rebelled because uh, I always felt like I knew better than both of my parents. However, what I didn't realize was that a lot of the time, my parents were always looking out for my best interests and not theirs. You know, in a godly home, the parents' desire is to see you come to faith in Jesus and to 
grow and live a life of faithfulness. And even if you're not in an entirely Christian home, your parents can still be a blessing. And God can still use them. That was my story. My dad isn't a Christian. But my dad is a great man. He looked out for others. He risked his life multiple times to rescue those who were in danger out at sea. He would do anything for people in his life. I remember years ago at my uncle Ivan's, my cousin Rachel and I were outside playing. And we decided to transform some antique cars belonging to Rachel's granda into slides. So we climbed up the back of them. We dented the roofs with our feet. And then we slid down the windscreen, denting the bonnets, before we slid down again. We were in massive trouble. And I was immediately taken home to be punished with the belt. And when we got back, I was petrified. But my dad takes me into a quiet room. And my dad shows me a prayer on forgiveness and grace that he found in the kitchen. The reason for this is that my dad wanted me to learn about his love more than knowing what I did was wrong. But what he doesn't realize is that he taught me about a heavenly father's love. You know, when you were born, you were a joy and a blessing to your parents. And as you grow up, their desire is that you will not only continue to be a joy and a blessing, but that you will also cause them to rejoice in your faith in Christ. It's this that helps you not only to follow a natural law, but a divine law given by God. And we see that here in verses 2 to 3. And it's this that helps you not only, um, sorry, if you're disobedient, not only do you shun the love that your parents are trying to show you, even in discipline when they're trying to correct you, but you shun that which God has given you. Look at verse 1 with me here. And we see here that the word obey is used. Now this word obey comes from two different words. And it literally means to listen under. Now this doesn't mean become mindless robots and do everything you're told. Look at verse 1 again. It says you are to obey your parents in the Lord. And that means that if what you are told is contrary to God's word, then decide whether or not you should be doing that thing. And this is not just for a specific age group, by the way. We are all to obey our parents. Even as we grow old and move out, and as they grow old and frail, our obligation is to serve them in the Lord. And that continues maybe not necessarily in obedience, but more as honour, respect, and love. Do we want to spend time with our parents? Do we want to help them? Do we want to care for those who cared for us in our youth? And so children, no matter what age you are, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Secondly, fathers, bring your children up in God's words and ways. 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we've just heard earlier, thanks to Ruth, the instruction for parents here is not only to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also to pass on the knowledge of who God is. And this is to create a culture within the home where everyone would know who the Lord is. Look at verse 4 with me. And Paul, this time, directs his attention to the fathers. And you may notice a footnote in your church Bibles here that will say, um, or parents at the bottom of the page. Now the reason for this is that the father was typically seen as the head of the household, therefore the sole authority. But when we think about what is being taught here, it could also apply to mothers as well. But specifically here on Father's Day, let's just think about it um, as how fathers can model godly parenthood in the home. Look at verse 4 and it says this, Fathers, do not exasperate, that means literally get angry alongside your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It can be difficult whenever we want to implement ground rules that we know will be helpful for them as they grow. And they ignore your authority because of stubbornness. And let's face it, we all live in the same sinful, broken world. It can be frustrating when what we say doesn't go. And we can feel easily enraged by the situation which is caused by unruliness and sin. And Paul warns us not to get angry alongside or to cause our children to be angry with us. And there are some ways that we can fall into this trap. We can be unreasonable. We can start fault finding. We can be inconsistent. We could set unrealistic expectations. And there are many more things. But the aim of godly parenting is not to crush your child, but to help your child grow in the training and instruction of the Lord, so that they will flourish. The word used here um, for bringing them up in verse 4 is the same used in verse 29. Whenever it speaks of feeding and caring, this is to be done with tenderness and love. Kent Hughes says this, Men are never more true men than when they are tender with their children, whether holding a baby in their arms, loving their grade or primary schooler, or hugging their teenager or a grown-up son or daughter. You know, as good as it is to implement healthy habits that are to be pursued by our children, like going to bed at a decent time so that they can make the most of the day, or brushing their teeth so that they don't fall out, The true model for healthy parenthood is to teach your children the ways of God through his word. Psalm 119 tells us that God's word is a lamp under our feet that helps to direct our paths. And we want to point our children to the one who can direct their paths too. As Ulster Begg says, it is not God's word that saves us, but it's the It's God's word that makes us wise to the God who saves. It is God's word that makes us wise to the God who saves. And sometimes this will mean discipline. 
Because like us, our children are also sinful. You know, we need God's word in our lives. And if we need it in order for us to know God, then how much more do our children need it? This discipline is good. It corrects us to turn away from our old sinful lifestyle and the instruction that follows calls us to pursue a life that God calls us to live. And as we allow that to become part of our culture in our homes, like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, then we can model it to our kids. Now this isn't to say that fathers or even mothers are perfect. And sometimes the privilege of parenthood can be abused. I have people in my family um, and people who I've worked with who have suffered from the hands of their dads or even their dads have left them at a young age. And that suffering has led to long-term effects. But for every abusive or missing father in each person's life, there is one heavenly father who knows you, who cares for you. His heart is for you. Should you accept him? If you come to faith through Jesus, God takes you and he cleans you of your sin, forgiving you for every wicked thing you have done in his eyes. And he adopts you into his family. And he calls you his child. Every believer here in this room is a son and daughter of God. And that should motivate us as we seek to lead our children in obedience. Dads, if you are struggling to live up to this command, then can I remind you that all of us, and I really mean all of us, will make mistakes on this. None of us are perfect like our Heavenly Father. But our Heavenly Father has given us grace that helps us in our weaknesses. God can use any of us, even unrepentant sinful people like my dad, to teach his grace and forgiveness to his children. And if God can use you, and you haven't yet come to faith, then God can use you because he wants you to know him. He is trying to show who he is to you in your life. And following his model of fatherhood and his word, he does not leave us blindly to find our way in the dark. But he is always by our side. And we can turn to him in prayer. We can turn to his word and we can seek his will and knowledge as long as we trust him. Children are a blessing. But an even greater blessing is whenever children come to know the one who loves them more than we do. And our heart for them should not only be that they believe in Christ, but they learn to serve him and follow his ways. So that's Christian living and obedience in the home. But what about the workplace in verses 5 to 9? Well, as we come to verses 5 to 9 here, firstly we'll have to deal with the elephant in the room. You know, in the past this passage was used to condone slavery and to subdue those who might have wanted freedom. And here in the UK we know that the abolition of slavery happened in 1807 with the US following in the, in the 1860s. 
But slavery still exists today around the world. And Christian organizations like International Justice Mission are constantly working to eradicate it. Even in Britain here today, there is still slavery and human trafficking illegally happening behind closed doors. But when the Bible speaks of slavery, it speaks of it in different terms. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that if a slave can gain freedom, then they should do it. In his letter to fight Eelman, Paul urges him to receive Onesimus as a beloved brother. Even the requirements for slavery in the Old Testament were categorically different from the Roman culture or the ideas that we have of slavery today. Being a slave was a way to repay financial debts that you couldn't make amends for. And on the year of Jubilee, those debts would be cancelled. And the slaves would be released unless they choose to remain in submission to their master because it is a better lifestyle than what they left behind. And furthermore, if someone was to try and sell someone into slavery, their punishment under God's law was death. You see, here the means of slavery in a fallen world under God's oppression, or God's provision, sorry, wasn't to oppress like the slavery in Egypt in Exodus, but it was to liberate those enslaved by death, debt. And Paul spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus. He knew the culture and the people. And it's estimated that a third of the population in Ephesus at that time were slaves. And Paul is wanting to address the culture here with the corrective lens of the gospel. So let's think about this in two ways. Firstly, how slaves submit in obedience to Christ. And firstly, look at the various means in which Paul asks those under masters to practice their obedience. Verse 5, obey with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. They are to obey. Look at verse 6 of me. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ. And in doing so, Serving God and doing his will that comes from the heart. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly. That's in complete devotion. Because the second half of this says in verse 7, you are serving the Lord and not people. Paul is building his plea here in layers. And as those layers are peeled back, we see Paul's motivation For this command. Paul himself um, considered himself to even be a slave and servant of Christ. And we see that in his introductions and his letters to Romans and Philippians. And Paul's motivation for serving the Lord came from how God had radically changed his heart. Brought him to life and in him prepared good works to do. And so Paul asked to serve not just with your hands or your mouth. Because anybody can do that. Serve with your heart. And so let me ask you this. What is your heart serving? You know, I've worked many different jobs in the past. I've been a building laborer. I've stacked shelves in a shop and I've worked in retail management. Um, I've even picked whelks on the shore. I've cleaned toilets 
Um, I've been a music studio technician. And as I was telling um, Jared last night, I worked as a care assistant in a nursing home. But I only managed that for two weeks. Um, some people just aren't cut out for it. And a colleague once asked me why I stack, stack shelves for a living. And to be honest, I said the reason for it was because it was easy money. And it was. But that's not what my heart's answer should be. My heart should have been bent towards serving the Lord in that place. And that should have been my direct answer. Despite being in slavery here, slaves could work hard for various goals in Roman culture. Some slaves simply wanted freedom. And they would look to earn it and become a free man in society. Others took advantage of their newfound position. And they would work their way through the ranks of the household and find themselves in positions of power under their master. Whatever the reason, Paul tells these slaves that their heart shouldn't be set on serving themselves and their goals or their masters. If their heart is in Christ, they should serve him in the gospel. And when we serve Christ in the workplace, our aim is no longer to make money or to make our name for ourselves. Our aim is to honour and glorify our heavenly master who places us in our own specific context as we create a culture in our personal lives in the workplace where we can serve him and we can honour him. And this all goes back to verse 21. Because everyone in the church should look to submit for Christ. And this is radical social change here from Paul. And yet he masterfully speaks into the culture to bring about positive changes for the gospel. And so all of us, no matter what, should live with Christ-centered accountability. And as we look at the, the last bit here about how masters submit in obedience, that includes them as well in verse 9. Everyone's master is Christ. And in the same way that in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, Paul says that there is no more Jew or Gentile, the same as Ephesians 3, there is also no more slave or free. Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. The conduct for masters and slaves is that those who find themselves in power must deal with their slaves by not showing hostility or favoritism, but by treating everyone with the same respect and compassion, the same way that Christ treats us all. It's the same way that slaves should serve too, seeking the reward in verse 8 that comes from Christ. And this takes us back to chapter 2, verse 7, where Paul says, so that in the coming ages, that he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace. And what does that mean for us now? Well, it means that God's heart is for everyone, whether it's the rich or the poor, the powerful and the powerless. And God calls those in his church who find themselves in these brackets to honour him wherever they find themselves serving on a daily level. In the home, 
serve one another. In the workplace, serve one another. If you're an employee in whatever sphere of work, work through Christ, work like Christ, and work for Christ. But if you're at or near the top, then lead through Christ, lead like Christ, who washed his disciples' feet, and lead for Christ. And how this work will depend on your context. In my past context, the past, the bosses that I respected were the ones who stood beside me, who did the undesirable jobs that nobody else wanted, who served their staff with compassion and a desire to see them grow in maturity and become better workers. You know, our heart shouldn't just be that people become better workers or become better leaders. But as godly Christ-following people, we want to glorify him and make him known through our actions, our words, and our goal is not to please others, but is to please him in following his will for us in our lives, wherever he places us. Again, we are not perfect in every way, in every way. and we're going to make mistakes as we do this. But the gospel gives us confidence to try in faith, knowing that God's grace is sufficient, not just in our mistakes, but also in using our feeble and weak efforts to manifest his glory. So as I close, in the home, we are to encourage our children in knowing Christ through what we teach them, and as they follow our instruction in obedience. They are entrusting their lives in our hands, And the best we can do for them is to help them enjoy the blessings of a godly, Christ-centered household. And in the world and in the workplace, we all have one master who is supreme. Jesus is Lord. And regardless of who you are, whether you're young or old, the CEO or the cleaner, the prime minister or even the bin man, there is no social bias here with God. He holds everyone in the same dock. And if you submit your life to Christ as his slave or his servant, then serve just as he taught us to serve. In love, in humility, and in grace. I've said this countless times, but I'll say it again. We will mess this up. But for every failure, God takes it. And he uses our feeble efforts in his mercy to manifest his glory. So if you're struggling in this area, there is grace for you to confess, to be forgiven, and to grow through Christ Jesus, God's Son, who serves you by his mercy and grace. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this Father's Day, we have a God who loves us as a Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you that you have shown to us what it means to love our children through the demonstration of love that you have shown us in sending your son Jesus to die on a cross even while we were still sinners. Lord, forgive us for the times that we get parenthood wrong. Forgive us for the times that we forget to learn how to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. 
And forgive us for the times, Lord, where we forget to submit our will and our authority to you in our workplace. Lord, help us to follow your paths. Lord, teach us to follow your ways. And Lord, help us in everything that we say and do, that we do and say these things for Christ's name, for Christ's sake, and for Christ's glory. Lord, these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.